We cannot change the past, but we can and must do everything in our power to help you build a future without fear. Western governments and the United Nations were allowing this to happen for reasons of Cold War politics. But could and should the UN have done more before the killing and burning started? The UN, he says, they did absolutely nothing to protect us. Hi, my name is Livia Hewson. And I'm Anjali Takor, and this is Never Again Again. On this week's episode, we will be discussing genocide case studies, particularly the Bosnian Civil War and Rwandan genocide. To provide further insight into these case studies, we will be bringing in journalist David Crary of the Associated Press and Professor Peter Yuvin of Claremont McKenna College. So first, let's discuss the Bosnian Civil War. Before 1991, the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia was composed of six republics. In June of that year, however, when Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic started to stoke nationalist flames and increase Serb dominance, the Republic of Slovenia seceded, sparking a relatively painless 10-day war. Croatia, which declared independence at the same time, faced a much tougher and more complicated exit. Because Croatia had a substantial Serb minority and a profitable coastline, the Yugoslav National Army refused to let it go. The seven-month war left some 10,000 dead and 700,000 displaced from their homes. By late 1991, it was evident that Bosnia, the most heterogeneous of Yugoslavia's republics, was in a bind. If Bosnia remained a republic within Yugoslavia, its Serbs would continue to receive preferential treatment, whereas Muslims and Croats would be marginalized and likely physically harmed under Milosevic's oppressive rule. On the other hand, if it did break away, its Muslim citizens would be put in an extremely vulnerable position as they did not have a parent protector in the area. Serbs and Croats in Bosnia counted on Serbia and Croatia respectively for protection, but the country's Muslims could rely only upon the international community. The members of the Bosnian presidency turned to Europe and the U.S. on how to avoid bloodshed. Western diplomats instructed Bosnian leadership to offer human rights protections to minorities and stage a free and fair independence referendum. In March 1992, a referendum was held on the question of independence, in which 99.4% of the voters chose to secede from Yugoslavia. However, the two Serb members of the presidency, who were hardliners, had convinced most of Bosnia's Serbs to boycott the referendum. Backed by Milosevic in Belgrade, both Serb nationalists in the presidency resigned and declared their own separate Bosnian-Serb state within the borders of Bosnia. The Serb-dominated Yugoslav National Army then teamed up with local Bosnian-Serb forces, contributing to a force of approximately 80,000 uniformed and armed Serb troops. Complicating matters for the Muslims and the Serbs and Croats who remained loyal to the idea of a multi-ethnic Bosnia, in 1991, the UN had imposed an arms embargo banning arms deliveries to the region. This froze in place a significant imbalance in Muslim and Serb military capacity. When the Serbs began a vicious offense aimed at creating an ethnically homogenous state, the Muslims were largely defenseless. Bosnian Serb soldiers took to compiling lists of leading Muslim and Croat individuals. Within days of Bosnia's secession from Yugoslavia, they began rounding up non-Serbs, savagely beating them and often carrying out executions. Bosnian Serb units also destroyed most cultural and religious sites to erase any memory of a Muslim or Croat presence. The Serbs' practice of targeting civilians and ridding their territory of non-Serbs was dubbed ethnic cleansing. 
As the war progressed, insiders and outsiders began to rely on the phrase to describe the means and ends employed by Serbs and other nationalistic forces in Bosnia. It was defined as the elimination of an ethnic group from territory controlled by another ethnic group. Although the phrase initially chilled those who heard it, it quickly became a numbing shorthand for deeds that were far more evocative when described in detail. Serb gunmen were aware that their violent deportation and killing campaign would not be enough to ensure the lasting achievement of ethnic purity. They sought to sever permanently the bond between citizens and land. Thus, they forced fathers to castrate their sons or molest their daughters. They humiliated and raped young women. Theirs was a deliberate policy of destruction and degradation. Destruction so this so-called enemy would have no homes to which to return. Degradation so the former inhabitants would not dare again to remain in Serb-held territory. David Crary has been a reporter, editor, and bureau chief for the Associated Press since 1976. His work has been featured in several well-known news outlets, including the Washington Post, ABC News, Time Magazine, and the Chicago Tribune. His past postings include Nairobi, Johannesburg, Paris, and Toronto. During the Bosnian conflict of 1992-95, to Curry served eight tours of duty in Sarajevo, where he extensively covered the ethnically rooted conflict in the former Yugoslavia. Since 1999, he has been an AP national writer based in New York, primarily writing feature stories about social issues. We are so grateful to have Mr. Crary with us today to provide his first-hand insight and expertise on the Bosnian War. Our first question is, could you please provide us with some background on your experience covering the Bosnian conflict? Yeah, I, I, I'd be glad to. I was based in uh, Paris at the time the war broke out. I was the news editor for AP in Paris and read from far away the start of that war in uh, the spring of 1992. It seemed pretty horrible. Uh, I had no intention of going to cover it, but they were, AP was desperate to get reporters in there, in there to be on the scene. Even though the city was under siege, people there couldn't get out, but reporters could get in through like United Nations flights or, or relief convoys. It was a very strange situation. Mm -hmm. It was a siege for the people there, but it was possible to get in from outside. So AP tried to send people for two or three weeks at a time. It was dangerous, it was scary, uh, trouble. Uh, you had to bring in your own food because the grocery stores were closed. Oh. Uh, and there was a rotation that started. I didn't join it immediately. Uh, I had a wife and two two little boys in, in Paris. But as they became more desperate for people, and I saw other guys with families, and, and women with families, excuse me, there were women also in the rotation. You know, I figured I should raise my hand and, and sign up, and I did. And it was um, very, very powerful uh, and scary. There, there was a bombardment of the city, uh, including the far side of the building where our initial office was, so the building would shake. Uh, there was sniper fire. Some journalists were, uh, were wounded by sniper fire, as well as hundreds and hundreds of civilians wounded and, and killed. So it was very scary, and yet it was also strange because uh, you could report. Uh, you, we had a little office. We had uh, computers to send our stories out. And we had three local Sarajevans working for us who were absolutely invaluable godsend in terms of advice, connections helping us get gasoline for our vehicles when that was hard to do. Um, so very dramatic, and uh, it, it got me just enough 
uh, invested in the story that after three months away, I, I raised my hand again, and it, it kept going like that for, for three years. I was part of a rotation of, of probably a couple of dozen AP people who went in and out of Sarajevo. Yeah, and in these different rotations, did you focus on different aspects of life in Bosnia, or was it just dependent on what was relevant during that time? It, that's a good question. I, I'd say none of us really carved out a subtopic that was a beat like we would back in our home cities uh, where we had sort of specialties. Here was, like you said, whatever was going on, mm. there were daily briefings by the UN peacekeepers about the security situation that we usually would write about each day, and then um, efforts to try to do moving feature stories. Uh, you couldn't churn out those every other day, but, but while you were there for three weeks, you would try to come up with, with three or four extra good, strong feature stories. So sort of a combination of those two things. Um, like, what did you struggle with? You know, how did you maintain your objectivity as a journalist in the face of human rights violations? You know, that's a, that's a, a really good question. I, I, before I went to Paris, I was news editor in South Africa mm -hmm. at, at the really dramatic time when the, the uh, white minority regime was clinging to power right. against the African National Congress. It was their last three years of that struggle. Mm -hmm. And in our stories there, we kind of moved away from the Associated Press's traditional even-handed and balanced, you know, two yeah. sides, 50-50. We didn't cover South Africa that way. We just decided that the journalism required us to empathize with fight against a racist minority government. We still would give some airtime to the government and the mm -hmm. police. We did not exclude them from our stories, right. but we gave more credence and more time to the people fighting against the party. That's a long-winded way of saying it was a little bit similar uh, in Sarajevo. Um, a, we were there, we couldn't go into the, uh, almost couldn't go into the surrounding territory where the Bosnian Serbs were with their cannons and uh, machine guns shooting at the city. I think once I did make a field trip in, in to meet their leader uh, up in the hills, we had to go through checkpoints, stop, and then, and then come back. Bottom line, we briefly would include <laughs> their viewpoint, but but not with a lot of um, empathy. Uh, so the stories weren't balanced mm -hmm, mm -hmm. To, yeah. to cut to the chase, and, and we all agreed that that was the right way to cover it. So it, it's an exception to the normal journalistic practice. You, you could probably think of some other things where you drop the pretense of being even-handed at 50-50, maybe such as civil rights in the U.S. or uh, some of these yeah. things that are happening overseas with persecuted minorities. But, so it was a really good question, and we didn't try to be 50-50. So I think, Anjali, speaking more about like the general sense of coverage, but how did you reconcile or with like your personal obligation as a journalist to cover the conflict and then with your personal safety at the same time? Mm, good question. I mean, we, we, while we were there, we tried to be um, responsible. We wore flak jackets when we went out, tried to take care of ourselves, not recklessly get in the line of fire. Some of the photographers took more chances. Uh, my colleagues and, and others, and, and I uh, admired them, but sort of was glad I didn't have to take the risks they did. What, what was hardest really was um, going in and out when the people in Sarajevo couldn't do that. Yeah. 
to be able to fly back to to uh, Paris, you know, Christmas holidays, and the city is all brightly lit. People are celebrating. You're remembering the city with, where the lights didn't work, and there was no running water, and it was cold, and they were getting shot at every day. So it was um, hard to, to kind of reconcile those two worlds. Yeah. Um, what do you identify as the most effective mechanisms or means of reporting on human rights violations in order to spark some kind of political action or empathy or emotion in your readers? There's no question that the best way to do that is through the voices of the people who mm -hmm. are suffering. That's easier said than done in some cases, yeah. but it's much, it's much better to get the people affected along with supplementing the voices of experts and, mm -hmm. and active and so forth and so and nowadays to get um, good visuals now that that's possible compared to 30 40 years ago you know with, with smaller lightweight uh, video equipment and mm -hmm. stuff it, I used to be cynical about the TV crews because uh, <laughs> I've always been a writer but man you see some of the really good uh, videos now of human rights problems and to hear and see the, the people suffering and where they live and the, the refugee camps or whatever it's a huge plus so get their voices and if possible show show them uh, through photos and, and video was there like a specific person that you spoke to that really whose story resonated with you and impacted you and you still think about it or remember it to today you know, one one family. I mean, I could probably think of, of a dozen people, mm -hmm. but one that really moved me. Uh, the woman was Bosnia um, had these three ethnic groups. They still do: uh, the, the Catholic, Croats, the uh, Orthodox uh, Serbs, mm -hmm. and the uh, Muslim majority. And Sarajevo had a mix of all three, unlike most of the rest of the, the yeah. of Bosnia. So I met a, a woman who was Muslim, and her husband was um, Serb, and he joined the police force and was killed defending Sarajevo, defending Sarajevo against the Serbs who were attacking him. He's lost his life, uh, and they had a little boy, and I talked to the mom and the little boy, and it, it just broke my heart, you know, her, her saying how much he loved his city, and he loved the fact that it was multi-ethnic, and was so disappointed that it was violently at war, and then and then the fact that he lost his life mm -hmm. against the bad Serbs. You know, he was he was what we called the good Serbs. And they, so I could think of other examples, but that one that yeah. one just leaps to my mind. I was sitting there with a woman and maybe a two year old boy. It was tough to just keep a, a you know calm face. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So as like we move, you know, in, it's twenty twenty one today. So and people are still evaluating like the Bosnian crisis. Like, what is it like for people to modernly evaluate the crisis and look back upon your work from the 1990s? Well, that's a that's a really good question. I, I hadn't really thought about it. It's a it's a real contrast with um, South Africa, where finally the liberation struggle worked and white minority rule ended, and there is a genuine democracy. The country's got a lot of problems, but in that specific sort of strand of history. Uh, there was a denouement and an ending, a resolution. Bosnia really hasn't had that. Those three ethnic groups are still uh, feuding constantly with each other. There's no kind of reconciliation, no real harmony. And that's disappointing, I think, for all of us who were there. 
we want us so much for the city to survive. We love the city and, and the people there. But, you know, things aren't that much better. That, of course they're better. They're not getting shot at. But but it's not one big happy family. Mm -hmm. real, so in terms of a legacy, it's frustrating, I think, for all of us. That the country is still divided. And, and, and so it, it is frustrating. And, like, currently do you feel any need, like, to go back to Bosnia and cover what, like, modern issues are going on? Or is it, like, something that you've moved you on You know, from? it's interesting. I haven't been back there, but I, I interested people in my family enough. My wife is a, a teacher. In fact, she teaches journalism at NYU. She's been back there to learn about it. Uh, met some of my former colleagues. Uh, really was fascinated by the place. And my one of my sons went there. Oh. <laughs> and is, he and, his, he and his wife, uh, before they settled down, they wanted to like travel around the world, but they made a point of stopping in uh, Sarajevo. They met one of the people who worked for us and had an amazing chat with her. So although I haven't been back, I sort of was there by extension uh, through uh, my wife and son. And I keep in touch with some of my former colleagues uh, by email and stuff. Um, is there anything that you know you haven't spoken about that you'd like our readers, or sorry, not readers, our listeners to take away as like the main message of this conversation, or anything you'd like to highlight? Oh, a couple of things. I mean, even though I, we're we're frustrated now that um, uh, things haven't worked out, at the time, I think almost all the reporters who were there, they were scared and. and living conditions were challenging sometimes. But I think all of us felt we were doing something really important mm -hmm. by getting the story out to the rest of the world. And that kind of sustained us. You don't always feel that way, no matter what you're writing about. Um, that one, you, know, you needed to be there to tell the story. And, and to be there, you had to take some chances. And I think all of us felt it was, it was worth the risk. Because what was happening was so ghastly and, and medieval. You just you don't do that. You don't besiege a city and, and uh, cut off its water and power and, and shoot cannons at it. And that, that went on for three years. So, yeah. um, so I think we felt it was it was worth it. it was so I think David Crary gave us a really interesting perspective as a journalist covering um, the Bosnian Civil War. I you know it really reson resonated with me the way he spoke about you know kind of not maintaining his objectivity. You know, I think we really associate the work of journalists, you know, with being objective. They're there to report both sides of the story. Mm. But, you know, in the case of mass human rights violations, like, how can you be expected to do that? You know, naturally, I think any person will empathize with one side, probably the side that is being persecuted by the perpetrator. And, you know, I, I think that... Um, that expectation or that obligation we place on journalists maybe should be rethought if they're covering genocide or other human rights violations. Yeah, I think this really started for Crary and his coverage of apartheid in mm -hmm. South Africa. Um, he like moved away from covering like an even-handed balanced side and that he decided that journalism required them to empathize with the fight against the racist minority government. Um, and they used kind of a similar approach in Bosnia um, when including viewpoints of the Serbians, but not with a lot of empathy. Yeah. And, you know, um, we talked about um, how, you know, that obligation for sparking political change, you know, with his coverage. But I think it's also important for us to talk about how, you know, the written word or articles are not the only way to report 
on human rights violations to spark change or empathy. You right. know, of course, there are photographs and footage. Yeah. So Anjali and I are both taking a genocide and human rights class. And we just read this book by Sharon Slowinski called Human Rights in Camera. And it kind of speaks to the power of photographs and of atrocity crimes. And it does discuss the Bosnian Civil War and it discusses its coverage and this display of these horrific events. And yet there's still a failure in response. Um, and like there's just this failure of media. And like, why do you think this occurs, Anjali? Honestly, I think that's a really good question. Um, today it feels like, you know, each horror or each atrocity crime gets about 30 seconds of recognition and, you know, public outrage before we move on to the next one. I think with um, the rise of social media, mass media in general, we're just always confronted with these images. And I think that can lead to desensitization mm. that we're so used to seeing them. It's like, you know, why should I be concerned about this when I'm going to see the same thing tomorrow? Right. And yeah, that is certainly a very, very sad <laughs> reality that we're finding ourselves in. Yeah. yeah. I think another point, it's kind of the opposite almost, is that the horror the horror is so grand that it defies people's bounds of imagination. Mm-hmm. You just cannot conceptualize you it. You can't conceptualize it. And so you turn away from it. Yeah, and I think that there's always inevitably going to be this disconnect. You know, we're here looking at images of distant atrocities right. that don't necessarily impact our everyday lives. You know, we we see the images, we shudder, we maybe we read about it. But beyond that, we're we're not stakeholders, yeah. you know? It's frustrating. It and, is. <laughs> yeah. And I think another another aspect that Gray Frist pointed out that was frustrating was the legacy of mm-hmm. Bosnia, you know, in some circumstances, we can see this kind of success story of a country moving on. But in Bosnia, like the country is still divided. And Curry remarked that he was extremely frustrated with this fact. Yeah, you know, I, I think reconciliation at the end of civil war, mass atrocity is a very messy, complicated process. You know, there's no one, one method fits all. You know, like certainly Rwanda is hailed as a kind of, you know, shining example of reconciliation. But I think it's important to remember that Rwanda is definitely the exception Mm -hmm. and not the norm. Right. So to kind of speak to Rwandan genocide and Mm -hmm. also speak to maybe a different perspective um, apart from a journalistic perspective, um, we're going to move to speaking in approach, approaching like uh, information surrounding genocide with an academic perspective by bringing in um, Professor Peter Uvin from Claremont McKenna College. Um, so I think first, I think why don't we give our listeners a little bit of background on you know what happened in Rwanda? Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So I think most of us are relatively aware of the Rwandan genocide of 1994. Um, like we're aware of this ethnic tension between the Hutu and the Tutsi. You know, the staggering death toll of 800,000 to a million deaths. Um, but let's dig a little bit deeper into the story. So the genocide itself was the culmination of a four-year period during which the civil war and extremist violence cost the lives of thousands of people. So to understand this inner country turmoil, it's probably best to go all the way back really to the origins of Rwanda. Before its colonization, most of Rwanda was a monarchy dominated by the Tutsi king, 
there were three primary groups, the cattle-rearing Tutsi, the agriculturalist Hutu, and the long-standing inhabitants of the region who were the Twa, who really engaged in pottery and hunting. And remarkably, their integration was pretty um, pretty deep. They, you know, spoke the same language, believed in the same god, had the same culture. But what really brought the divide between these people was the colonization by the Germans from 1897 to 1916, and from Belgium from 1917 to 1962, um, and 1962 Rwanda gained its independence. But they, this colonization completely changed the nature of a state. It became a conduit for the rule of the colonizer. There was obligatory cash crops, um, forced labor, imposed taxes, adherence to Catholic religion, etc., etc. Um, and the main benefits of uh, this colonization control were the, the Tutsi people because the Bazungu or the Germans believed that the Tutsi were more intelligent and hardworking than people like the Hutu. So there was this extreme uh, rigid ethnic classification um, which essentially resulted in like reserved education and jobs and the administration and the army only for the Tutsi. But by the end of the 1950s and the beginning of the 1960s, um, there was this movement for decolonization around the world, and then there was this dissatisfaction with the Hutu people. And so a few Hutu educated at the Catholic schools after the Second World War um, actually overthrew the government um, and essentially established an inverted political system with the small Hutu elite at the top of the political system. Um, and there were two pretty successful regimes, the First Republic under Kaibanda and the second under General Habia Rumana. Um, and essentially, they both enacted this system of systemic discrimination against the Tutsi. Um, and so it was this ethnic tension in combination with an economic crisis in Rwanda that really led to the genocide. Um, there was this gigantic fall in the price of coffee, which was Rwanda's main export, and subsequent structural adjustment program, which devalued the Russian franc. Um, that led to the erosion of the public jobs sector and large increase in debt. Um, and then there was also this fear of the government um, due to like the Tutsi invasion with the FBR. Um, and all of these things, which is quite a complex history, kind of led to the Rwandan genocide. And this really in was initiated in April of 1994 when the plane carrying General Abiyar Rumana from a peace, peace negotiation in Arusha was downed. And the army... Um, against the government was ready and they begun the violence and the subsequent millions of deaths. So we're going to bring in Peter Yuvin to discuss his research of the Rwandan genocide. Peter Yuvin is a professor of government at Claremont McKenna College where he serves as the vice president for academic affairs. Yuvin was a former Henry Lear professor in humanitarian studies at Tufts University and Dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts from 2007 to 2013. He was awarded the Guggenheim Fellowship Award in 2006. In recent years, his research has dealt with the intersection between development aid, human rights, and conflict, primarily in the African Great Lakes region. 
He is the author of four books, including Aiding Violence, the Development Enterprise in Rwanda, which won the Herskovitz Prize of the African Studies Association in 1999. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Yuvin. Our first question is, could you please give us a brief historic contextualization of the Rwandan genocide? Sure, and thank you for this kind introduction. Small detail, I am not dean of the faculty anymore. I stepped down from that a year ago. Um, but apart from that, so Rwanda is a small nation in Central Africa, Central East Africa, with about six million inhabitants or so. The standard argument is that there are 85% Tutsi, sorry, 85% Hutu, um, who might have been the original inhabitants of the area, or at least more long-standing inhabitants, and about 15% uh, Tutsi, who might have migrated in there um, as herders coming from um, the Horn of Africa. Whether that is actually all correct is not entirely sure. There is enough evidence that, that cast some degree of doubt on that, both on the proportions of these people, the origins of these people, and the kinds of relations that these people had before colonization. The problem with that is that there's just a lot of lack of knowledge about it. The colonizers, who were the earliest ones who did the science, quote-unquote, of these people, had clearly very um, Western-centric mm -hmm. and uh, perceptions of these people, full of preconceptions, frankly, which means that a lot of the original science, the anthropological work, the archaeological work, and so on, is of dubious quality. Mm -hmm. and, yes, and yet, that's all we have. So, in any case, the way it is perceived, or it used to be perceived by Rwandans themselves, is that the Tutsi were sort of overlord uh, category, uh, um, who basically ruled over brutally ruled over, it is suggested, the Hutu whom they exploited, um, using essentially their cows as the, as the main tool to organize this exploitation by. By the way, there's a small group of other people called the Twa, an indigenous group, but they are very few in numbers and they do not play any major role in the politics of the country either way, so they're often left out of the equation. So, it, what is for sure is that the Belgians considered the Tutsi indeed as naturally born rulers, um, gave them more access to education uh, rather than the Hutu, um, and used them generally in the sort of indirect rule systems that characterize much of colonial rule, where the colonizer doesn't actually administer the whole country. The colonizer has locals doing that mm -hmm. for them, and those locals were Tutsi. Mm -hmm. So once we get to about independence, it takes place in a run that was called the Social Revolution where some Hutu, who had been educated finally, much later, but nonetheless had finally been educated in missionary schools, sort of take cognizance of their exploitation, their historical exploitation, by the Tutsi and the Tutsi king, and overthrow the whole shebang, presumably in a social revolution, which now finally the masses, the real people of Rwanda, uh, are freed from both colonialism, frankly, and the oppression by the Tutsi. So many Tutsi do flee the country at that point in time, uh, primarily to Burundi, to Congo, to Uganda, but also further away. Mm -hmm. The king, for the matter, lived in Washington for decades uh, after being deposed. And so that created an independent Rwanda, now ruled by 
Hutu government, mm. whose legitimacy in part rested on the fact that they precisely were not those nasty Tutsi yeah. <laughs> governments. <laughs> right? And essentially that system continued all the way until 1994. In 1990, however, a bunch of descendants of these Tutsi refugees, so people who were born in Uganda, Tutsi, tried to return back to Rwanda um, and were not allowed to do that and eventually took up arms to do that. There's a whole lot of politics behind that too, including Ugandan politics, where they were frankly not welcome there anymore either, or they didn't feel welcome. And so they started a civil war from 1990 with an invasion by the RPF. And so eventually, in the next three, four years of that civil war going on, sometimes at a high level, sometimes at a much more low level, um, radicalization occurred, um, mistrust between Hutu and Tutsi communities grew, um, rhetorics, anti-Tutsi rhetoric spread significantly. And all of this led from April 7, 1994 onwards, when the plane carrying the president was shot down and there was a power vacuum inside Rwanda, led to the genocide at that point. That is the standard story of how the genocide came about. Oh, that's a really excellent comprehensive overview for such a complex history. Um, I mean, obviously we have like the economic crisis that also goes on with um, the falling of prices in coffee and then the structural adjustment programs. Um, which I think all factor in. There's kind of an environmental crisis as well, um, but you really hit the major um, points. So as an author, what approach did you take in your research and evaluation of the Rwandan genocide? My question per se that drove me was to understand, as the title of the book says, what the impact was of the massive presence of an international development aid machinery in Rwanda on the dynamics that led to genocide. Mm -hmm. People like me who had worked there before and many, many others were there until the last day and we did not see this coming at all, whatsoever. So it posed just a fundamental question to me, why do I know so little about the society I worked in that something as devastating can happen as this? And we had no idea. And then the second question that came from that was, What's the impact of guys like me walking around in societies like those who are clearly ignorant, but nonetheless we have a lot of money and influence? What's the impact of our behavior on those dynamics? Mm. That was really my question. I did not intend necessarily to explain the genocide. I wanted to understand the role of international community in the years leading up to it. But it is true, to, to do that, to find out what the impact was, I actually did have to answer the question on what caused the genocide in the first mm. place which I ended up trying to do. Um, and you're right, economic factors undoubtedly and ecological factors undoubtedly played a role in that. Not in a sort of direct one-on-one, -on -one, as some people have tried to sort of put the blame on the World Bank or the IMF, always mm -hmm. very popular to do. That's BS, frankly. <laughs> the, any single causal explanation of something as complicated as a genocide is nonsense. It's just, it's just a priori nonsense. But is it the case? that there was a, a serious sense of constraint, of fear, economic fear, political fear, destabilization of a lifestyle for, uh, for hundreds of thousands of Rwandans, might that have made them, as it did in Germany, say, a century earlier, 
well, not a century, 60 years earlier, might it have contributed to providing a fertile ground for genocide? Yes, mm. of course. Mm. These factors played into it. Eventually, what my question became is this. The standard explanation of the genocide at the time was that Hutu elites, intent on staying in power, right, essentially fomented genocide to maintain their power, right? Create a good scapegoat, organize everybody against the scapegoat, and use that to solidify your own hold on power. And there is no doubt that Hutu elites did sow the seeds of hatred. Absolutely they did, and they did so quite consciously and deliberately. However, my question became much more, when these seeds are being sown, they fall into the soil. And that soil, it seems, was very fertile mm. in Rwanda. Because Rwandans, like you and I, don't just kill because they're told to do so or suggested it's a good idea. They have the same principles against doing it as you and I have. So if the seeds yielded fruit so badly or so well, in a way, then I had to understand what made the soil fertile. Mm -hmm. And that's what I eventually set out to do. Yeah, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about, you know, the process you underwent in your research. Like, who did you talk to? Which scholars did you collaborate with? And, you know, what did you struggle with? <laughs> uh, yeah, at the time, first of all, everybody thought my subject was a stupid subject. Which <laughs> <laughs> yeah. can mean either of two things. Either it actually is a stupid subject, <laughs> or you're onto something mm -hmm. great that is going to open new doors, right? Yeah. Um, and I was fortunate enough um, that it turned out to be the latter. But I remember that pretty much everybody whom I spoke to about what I wanted to do understand the relationships between international aid and, and, and the dynamics that led to genocide told me that I was looking at something that didn't exist. Like, why was I wasting my time? And so, typically when people say no to me, I feel all the more like continuing. <laughs> and so, that was part of my relation. So it turned out into a, a very solitary enterprise, mm. frankly, because the overwhelming majority of both practitioners and scholars didn't see what I was looking mm -hmm. at. Um, at the time when I wrote this, which was, I started writing it immediately when the genocide started even, and it took me obviously some time to finish. There was really no particular way to go to Rwanda and do research. Yeah. So I did nearly all of it based on documentary evidence. Mm. Fortunately, over the years that I had worked there already, I had acquired enormous amounts of what you could call grey literature, right? little journal articles that were mimeographed and distributed, um, reports from organizations and uh, about their work or the failures of their work. And, and at the time, by the way, we were talking pre-internet here, so this stuff was hard to find, yeah, I but imagine. I had a lot of it. And I did have good connections, and so I went around and acquired more of it. In Belgium I went, in Switzerland I went, in England I went, and I, I essentially accumulated as much as I could um, data on what Rwandan society looked like and felt like mm. to Rwandans prior to the genocide, in the, in the hope that out of that I could create my argument. Yeah. And so when you were talking about this kind of relationship between the international community and Rwanda, was there this nece necessity to maintain like an objective perspective? Or and like with this like massive human rights violation and I guess your unique perspective of the international community, like I guess what was your way about going and describing the story for hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. 
Because as a scholar, you should try to be objective. If you know the answer in advance, or you select your evidence in function of the answer you would like to achieve in advance, then you're not doing actually really scholarship. You may be doing interesting social change work, and that may be worth it, but you shouldn't call it scholarship. So you should be quote-unquote objective. Mm -hmm. And whatever that means and however we get there. At the same time, you're equally right. Something like a genocide isn't sort of a neutral thing, like let me study the behavior of uh, some butterflies in the garden and so on, right? It's a, it's a deep, immense, um, sad thing. There were friends of mine killed in the genocide, and you can't forget it. So, nonetheless, I do think if you want to be a scholar, you have to be open that the assumptions you have, the arguments you have, the beliefs you hold are wrong. If not, it's not I repeat, if not, it's not scholarship. So I did try to test it as well as I could on alternative explanations. Mm -hmm. And over time, alternative explanations started coming in, right? And scholars were starting slowly to do work. More of the scholarship came after I finished my book. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Let's see, because my book was really finished already in 97, actually most of the key arguments in 96, within two years. And in the years maybe 97 to 2010, a lot of good scholarship came out later. Mm -hmm. um, so it didn't influence my book that much because it wasn't out there yet, although I did know many of these people and, and learned from them. Yeah. So you talked about kind of how a bunch of scholarship came off after the fact. Um, First of all, like how did that kind of influence your ultimate conclusion about the relationship between the international community and Rwanda? And then I guess, what was your actual conclusion about <laughs> the yes. international community and Rwanda? Yes, that's correct. Let's start there briefly. And, and obviously, as I told you, a single causal conclusions are bound to be wrong. Mine is not single causal. It has a whole bunch of factors in them. But one of the... One of the factors that certainly was of importance, I believe, is obviously indeed a systematically maintained ideology of racial exclusion, mm -hmm. which was the underpinning of the regime, um, which is internalized in people and can be activated more or down depending on, on historical moments. But without it, it would have been a much harder to envision killing other people. To kill other people, you have to consider them other in the first place. And believe me, when you see them, you can't see the difference. So it's not an obvious thing. So that maintenance of an ideology of difference and inferiority and superiority is obviously an underlying factor. Um, other scholars have later on had more doubts about that. Um, and it's an interesting question. It certainly is a facilitating factor, but is it a determining factor? or not. Others have argued that other factors were way more determinant than that pre-existing ideology. And I have sympathy for that argument. That said, I still believe it is crucial. The second thing then that I believe was really important was a situation that I call structural violence mm -hmm. that the Rwandans lived in, which was one of extreme closure of life chances through any other means. That's partially an ecological and agricultural thing. Most Rwandans live lives in which they essentially do gardening on small plots. They don't have anything like a larger scale agriculture. Mm -hmm. They could not escape from the countryside because they weren't allowed to. And hence, every square centimeter of land becomes of the utmost importance. 
under those circumstances, it's quite clear that violence ripped up from above can fulfill two functions. One is a psychological one almost, a cognitive one, which is to find an explanation of for, for the evil, for the awful situation of your own life. Somebody to blame for it. Uh, scapegoating essentially, which is popular everywhere in the world because we humans need explanations. And so in that regard then, the, um, the scapegoating of Tutsi, Tutsi neighbors, not the FPR who mostly didn't see, but the Tutsi neighbors, was probably something that found the fertile ground precisely. The other is, and I underplayed it in my own work, that there were actually opportunities here to capture resources. If your neighbor disappeared magically, then your neighbor's land and tools and house might be up for grabs. And so other authors have made more of a uh, sort of almost rational argument about participation in the genocide. That it was truly, for many Rwandans, simply a way to do better under situations of extreme constraints and no other solutions. They were almost offered this option out, or this option to enhance their quality of life by essentially ensuring that their neighbors would cease to exist. It's nasty, but it is an argument that has been made, and I believe it has some element of validity. A related one that has been made, for example, is that the most active participants in the genocide were not the poorest, but those 11 above, those who had a chance to get out of, of the prison of farming um, by becoming politicians or having a, mo a role in the state, but the competition for these positions is enormous. And when the plane was shot down, an opening emerged where everything was up for grabs. New entrants could enter the game of politics, new people could become powerful, and active participation in the genocide was the path towards acquiring that new power. So again, a sort of self-interest, almost rational choice kind of argument. I had not made an argument like that either. So there is still a lot out there up for discussion. Generally, the international communities, the role in it is of course another major one. I wasn't focusing on the period during the genocide, I was focusing on the period before. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I can say is that during these years prior to the genocide, as an increasing amount of victimization and, and radicalization and violence took place, the international community never did a thing to try to stop this in general. They basically let it go on. Maybe in part because they thought that they couldn't stop it either. But whatever be the case, there was certainly no barrier there, no, no breaking of the dynamic going on. That's that. So I think both Crary and Yuvin offer quite unique perspectives in terms of depicting genocide. Um, you know, we have Crary as a journalist and Yuvin as an academic. So I think as a summarizing remark of the podcast, it'd be interesting to compare their two approaches. I think a really important distinction between uh, Crary and Yuvin is that Crary was in Bosnia during the Civil War itself, mm -hmm. and he was very much reporting on events that were unfolding right before his eyes and reporting in real time. Whereas Yuvin, I guess, did have the benefit of hindsight going into his research. Right. And Yuvin couldn't actually get into Rwanda exactly. during the time. So that definitely would have um, impacted the way he went about his research and the approach he took because he didn't really have the chance to speak to people who were there. Yeah, and he also remarked about a lot of scholarship came after the fact of mm -hmm. like 1997 and the genocide. And that definitely would have influenced the way, you know, his book was received and, you know, just how he went about it. Right. Um, so I think there's also this 
another addition to the distinction in their research and approach is the question of responsibility and objectivity. Mm. Um, so kind of what do you think are the differences between Crary and Yuvin in this matter? I feel like Crary, as a journalist, his responsibility is to his readers. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, he was reporting in real time, and we talked to him about, you know, what were the most effective ways of sparking action or empathy in his readers. Right. Whereas Yuvin, again... I guess he had an obligation to the community of scholars mm-hmm. or even to also the Rwandan people in, you know, writing down what happened. And, you know, I guess, but both, I guess, are defined by objectivity, mm-hmm. but they both talk about how they kind of strayed from that a little bit. Yeah, because genocide is not a neutral exactly. topic in nature. Um, but yeah, I think Curry has this, he, when we were talking about what the most effective way of portrayal, and he said it was through people's stories, right? Mm-hmm. And I think... As an academic, it's important maybe to have a, some case studies, mm-hmm. but in a way, it is like I think more of an obligation to provide a more comprehensive overview of what's happening at the time. Definitely, and Yuvin also emphasized, you know, as a scholar, you can't go into something already having a conclusion, right? You kind of have to do the research and look at both sides before you arrive at your conclusion. Otherwise, you shouldn't call it scholarship. You should call it, you know, advocacy. Absolutely. And when you arrive at that conclusion, you can't attribute a sole cause to genocide. I think um, that is a really big misconception that genocides have single causes. Mm -hmm. And I think we're all very desperate to identify single causes because it makes it easier, you know, next time when this happens, this one thing happens, we know, you know, we can't let it get to a stage where genocide occurs. But so much of the time, it's the interplay of environmental, political, economic factors, like Yuvin said. Yeah, Yuvin was talking kind of about the structural adjustment programs Mm -hmm. and the devaluing of the Russian franc. And he's like, this is a single cause, but it is not genocide. And what contributes to genocide is so much more. Exactly. There's never one cause. Yeah. Um, And I think that's something important to remember. But uh, for our listeners, we really appreciate you listening with us, and we hope you've learned something new um, beyond the normal conceptions of the Bosnian Civil War and Rwandan genocide. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next week. Bye.